0: Morning, Covenant. Uh, just want to briefly uh, introduce what we're doing here. This is the 2019 Kuiper Lectures. Thanks to the—that's right. All right. Thanks to the generous um, help of a donor who has uh, appreciated the the work of Kuiper and his influence in the uh, over, over the last century. Uh, including at a place like Covenant College, you will see Kuiper in the stained glass windows. I'll let you look for that later. Um, these lectures give us an opportunity not not simply to occasionally look back at Kuiper himself and his work, but actually the lasting um, legacy and influence uh, r- around Kuiper. And today we have such an example where we have a Kuiperian scholar coming to think afresh about some things with us, not not really to go back and talk about Kuiper, but, but to follow and practice the Kuiperian tradition. Our lecturer today is Craig Bartholomew, Ph.D. from University of Bristol. He's the director of the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics at Tyndall House in Cambridge. Before that, he served as professor of philosophy at Redeemer in Ontario. He's written a lot, um, and we could talk about his work. It's it's diverse, includes a commentary on Ecclesiastes. He's co-authored several important books with Michael Goheen, The Drama of Scripture, Christian Philosophy. And most recently, he wrote a volume, Contours of the Kyperian Tradition, a Systematic Approach. For the lectures we will have today, which will be uh, on prayer, This afternoon at 4 p.m. in Sanderson 215, the lecture will be on Entertaining Foxes, Spiritual Formation in the Kyperian Tradition. And then again, tomorrow here at 11, when? Where? Part 2 on prayer. Welcome, Dr. Bartholomew.
1: Thank you, Kelly, and it's great to be with you here. This is my first visit to Covenant, and what an amazing campus you have. So uh, I I, I think most of you have heard of Abraham Kuyper or Kaper, or however you pronounce it. But in case you don't know, he lived in the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century and was truly an extraordinary figure. He was a Dutchman. Okay, in the Netherlands. And he was a pastor, a theologian, uh, a prolific author, a journalist, a politician. Uh, He became the prime minister of the Netherlands. So, an extraordinary figure. And my hope is, and why I'm excited to be at a place like Covenant, is that something of the fire of the kind of vision that Caper had is catching hold of you and your lives. So, Caper had an extraordinarily big vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the sort of vision that can be encapsulated in what the Spirit does when the Spirit brings us to Jesus, and we make this confession as you find it, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, Jesu kurios, Jesus is Lord. And there's a very famous statement by Kooper that many of you will have heard, but that I like to quote at every opportunity I get, and it's this There is not a square inch of the entire world of which Christ does not say, That is mine. Okay, now my hope is that here at Covenant, that sort of vision is alive and well, and that even as uh, I guess many of you are tired, right? You're heading sort of towards the end of the year. Be assured that faculty are tired too, and, but God is not tired. And so uh, I'm hoping that what I have to say to you over these two days uh, will encourage you and, and nurture you uh, to live for Christ amidst this tired part of the year. Now, the Caperian vision that comes out of Abraham Kuyper is rightly exhilarating. But it has, and the psychologists here will understand this expression, it's shadow side. And this afternoon, Kaper wrote a little book called Three Small Foxes. And this was his attempt to identify the shadow side. And he has three foxes that you should not entertain, in uh, in his words, in your vineyard. You've got to chase them out, otherwise they will damage the vineyard Irrevocably, but the one thing that I think is uh, a great temptation with the Camparian tradition, and a thing we need to watch for very closely, is that we don't intellectualize the tradition. So everything becomes about what's in our head, and especially in the Reformed, the Presbyterian, the Pr- Protestant traditions, this is an enormous temptation. The other temptation that many of of us succumb to when we are captured by this vision is activism because we're so eager and rightly so to transform the world and to bring it to the feet of Jesus that we just, uh, uh, you know, give ourselves in a type of crazy activism. So, uh, as Kelly said, one of my recent books is called Contours of the Caparian Tradition. And in the final chapter of that book, I argue that the biggest thing that the Caparian tradition needs to recover today is spiritual formation. Not intellectualism, not activism, but spiritual formation. And that's what I'm gonna try and open up for you in the two days that I'm with you here on this fabulous campus. Now what better way to begin to open up spiritual formation than to attend to Jesus himself, okay? And so in this opening address, I want to talk about Jesus and his prayer life and what you and I can learn and should learn from it. Now, as you will know, fires normally blaze in the open, but it is not so with the fire of prayer. It is like a hidden fire whose effects are seen in our humanity And in God's response, we are made for God. And so there is nothing, correctly understood, more human than prayer. That openness towards the living God who has come to us in Jesus. However, because of the glorious hiddenness of prayer, it is often the first thing to go. And my hunch is, as you head down the hill can't wait for the summer, college is becoming a bit wearing, and all this, all those glorious things like exams beckoning you and the stress and the strain, that the one thing that has probably gone is the practice of prayer. And we settle for less when God wants to give us so much more of himself. Now, I don't know if you know about the Desert Fathers. They're not really Presbyterian heroes but they were early Christian monks okay, who were so disenchanted with what was going on in the culture that they withdrew into the desert. Now, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, and maybe at this stage of the semester, you would quite like to withdraw into the desert, (laughs) but don't do it, okay? And if you do it, I'm not responsible, you understand. So (laughs) Kelly or your president, they can take full responsibility. But there's a story about, from the Desert Fathers that I love when it comes to prayer. So one of the fathers, an Abba means father, Abba Lot went to see Abba Joseph and said to him, Abba, as far as I can, I say my little office. I fast a little, I pray, I meditate, I live in peace, and as far as I can, I purify my thoughts. What else am I to do? What else, Abba Lot said, can I do? Then the old man stood up, stretched his hands towards heaven, and his fingers became like ten lamps of fire. And he said to them, if you will, you can become all flame. See, we settle for so much less when God wants to give himself to us and give us so much more. Now, how do you become all flame? through a sustained life of prayer. And how better to regain our desire for prayer at this time in the academic year and as we head into the summer than through a focus on Jesus' own practices. And I just want to draw your attention to two of them this morning. The first is this very simple thing. Jesus prioritizes time alone with the Father. Jesus engaged regularly in public worship, but he also makes time alone with God a priority. It is the bedrock, as it were, from which his whole public ministry emerges. And if you want to do a study of this, I, I'm so delighted to see some of you are going to be praying with the Psalms. But the gospel that foregrounds Jesus' prayer life is the Gospel of Luke. And what you will see there at every critical phase in his ministry, He's withdrawing for a night of prayer, or he's going into a solitary place, for example, before he chooses his disciples. All of this tells us that Jesus prioritized time alone with the Father and that his public ministry was an extension of this time alone. Now, you know, how did Jesus start his public ministry? Do you remember with the 40 days in the wilderness? And this is particularly interesting to me because us good evangelicals and reformed folk tend to skip over it as an item unique to Jesus' ministry and therefore irrelevant to ours. However, in the history of Christian spirituality, it is often read otherwise, sometimes in remarkably radical ways. So St. Anthony, one of the earliest monks, took this phase in Jesus' life as an inspiration to head for the desert and not to spend 40 days there but to spend the next 20 years there in an old fort in which he barricaded himself. Now, even without such a radical reading of this element in Jesus' narrative, we can plainly see that the 40 days is an example of an extended period of solitude that may not have been atypical in Jesus' devotional practices. And it is this solitude... That I want to draw to your attention. Whether it is 10 minutes, half an hour a day, or 40 days, and what the tradition of Christian spirituality tells us, this is essential if we are to become all flame. And so Louis Boyer says this about solitude solitude alone allows man, he doesn't, okay, we can say the human person, to discover and so to face all the obscure uh, forces that we bear within ourselves. The person who does not know how to be alone does not know either what conflicts there are in the depths of his or her heart, conflicts which he or she feels that he or she is incapable of untangling, even of touching. Boyer says, solitude is a terrible trial for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. It opens uh, out to us these abysses, the unknown abyss that we all carry within us. Solitude discloses the fact that these abysses are haunted. It is not only the depths of our soul unknown to us that we discover, but the obscure powers that are, as it were, lurking there, whose slaves we must inevitably remain, so long as we are not aware of them. In truth, this awareness would destroy us if it were not illuminated by the light of faith. Now, do you know what I find so interesting about the story of Antony? I'm not recommending that you head off for 20 years in the wilderness or into a desert uh, solitude. But it's very instructive in this sense, and you know, when I was a prophet redeemer, I always used to ask my student the question that the founding professor of art history at the Free University of Amsterdam used to ask his students, why does God save us? Now, I'm not asking, you know, what motivation does God have, but to what end or telos does God save us? And they would come up with all sorts of interesting answers. It was rare to get Rookmarker's answer, but boy is it good news. And his answer is this, that God saves us in order to make us fully human. Now see, I don't know about you, but in my experience, when I was converted at 14 uh, out of a nominally Anglican home in South Africa, I was saved into a a kind of Christianity where everything was evangelism. Now, boy, we need evangelism. But it's not all there is to the Christian life. And what I found was that the church made me angular to a certain extent rather than opening out my full humanity. But here is just a glorious truth that to be all flame is to become fully human, not in a self-indulgent way, but to become more fully the person that God made you to be. Uh, Henri Nouwen, Henry Nouwen says that we learn from St. Anthony that we must be made aware of the call to let our false, false, compulsive self be transformed into the new self of Jesus Christ. It also shows that solitude is the furnace in which this transformation takes place. Finally, it reveals that it is from this transformed or converted self that real ministry flows. Now, if all this sounds to you a bit too medieval and you're thinking, why did they bring this Anglican in to speak? Let me reflect on an example now in uses of our false self. He refers to our busyness, our endless activism, as a great indicator of a false self. Now, do you know what I learned from Eugene Peterson, who's one of our greatest reform thinkers in the area of spirituality? And this boy is devastating. Busyness is a sign of laziness. Peterson says this of the excessively busy pastor: the word "busy" is not the sim- is the symptom not of commitment, but of betrayal. It is not devotion, but defection. The adjective busy, set as a modifier to pastor, should sound to our ears like adulterous to characterize a wife, or embezzling to describe a banker. It is an outrageous scandal, a blasphemous affront." And so we need solitude if we are going to become all flame. We need solitude if we are going to create the space for the spirit to do deep work inside us and to dismantle our false selves so that our true selves can emerge and we can become fully human. Now, You know, Jesus' extended retreat into the wilderness is so fascinating in so many ways. Uh, I don't know if you've studied or reflected on the three temptations that he is exposed to, but they are all designed by Satan to tempt Jesus to avoid the way of the cross. That's what Satan is trying to do, anything to get Jesus to avoid the calling of the cross. And you know as well as I do that Jesus combats him with Scripture and emerges from the wilderness ready for his public ministry, shadowed throughout as it will be by the cross. Comparably, if we are to find our way over the long term, now all of you are so young, okay, gloriously young, the whole of your lives are ahead of you, so it's hard to think. But I learned from Eugene Peterson, who quotes the philosopher Nietzsche, that what we have got to aim for, even at this stage in your lives, is not the quick sprint, but the long obedience in the same direction, which always produces great things. Now, if you pursue that amidst the tsunami of issues facing us in Western culture today, Your journey will be wonderful, but it will be shadowed, as was Jesus, throughout by the cross. If we are to find our way with integrity and to shed our social compulsions in our narcissistic consumer culture, a culture which finds any notion of the cross abhorrent, then we will need regular times alone with God. And you know, I don't know how you are going to do it in your generation. I didn't grow up with the tsunami of technology that is now upon us so that one can barely survive without checking uh, to see, you know, uh, who's texting me now and, and so on and so forth, not least amidst the March Madness that I have uh, encountered as I am visiting your country. <laughs> the civilization, says Lu, in which we find ourselves makes prayer difficult the first thing that strikes one is that our teleological, technological civilization brings about a change in the rhythm of existence. There is a speeding up of the tempo which makes it difficult to find the minimum of freedom on which a minimum life of prayer depends. Now listen to this phrase, prayer is thus rendered almost impossible for most people. So if we want to be all flame, we're going to have to swim against the tide, and we are going to have to make it non-negotiable that every day there is some time for solitude and stillness in the presence of God. So first of all, Jesus prioritizes prayer time. Secondly, Jesus prays from the heart. Now, do you know, uh, Henry, now, and I don't know what the current statistics are, but they're really frightening. And maybe one of you as a project would like to do some research at Covenant College. But Nauen says that most pastors statistically pray for less than 20 minutes a day. I wonder what it looks like at Covenant College, and I make no assumption. Now, for Jesus, prayer is not just thinking about God. And see, I think this is one of the things, and if you want to talk about this while I'm here, I would be welcome to do so. So, when I became a Christian, we were all told prayer was very important, but no one told you how to pray, okay? And uh, I used to say to my students that uh, here's a test to find out if you've got a really good pastor, Go to your pastor and ask him or her to teach you how to pray and then see what happens. But I was left with the notion of the quiet time, and then we reduce prayer to some kind of intellectual reflection on Scripture, and then the long list, you know, bless Auntie Betty, and then there's Uncle Jack, and -and so-and-so's dog, and this other person, and so on and so forth. But for Jesus, prayer is far from just thinking about God and speaking to God. Prayer is communion, and it is from the heart. And for those of you who know the Old Testament wisdom literature, in the Old Testament wisdom literature, the heart is the deepest part of our human person, the place where God most connects, and the place out of which thinking and emoting flow. And there there are two places, I think, that really draw this home to us. Luke chapter 10 and chapter 11. The first one you'll know well. Do you remember where Jesus came to visit the two sisters, Mary and Martha? So Martha, high stress, and just whizzing around trying to get the meal ready and getting herself into a real state. And where is Mary? Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, if you're wondering about my accent, I grew up in South Africa. So if I was introducing myself, uh, which I'm glad I didn't have to, Kelly did such a good job, I would say I am a white, English-speaking, Earl Grey-drinking African. So it's fundamental to my identity that I am an African. But, so here you find uh, Mary, Uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and I'm telling you that I'm an African because one of the greatest Christian thinkers in the history of the faith is an African, Augustine. Sadly, he came from North Africa. If he'd only come from South Africa, we would have had none of the problems and challenges in the history of the church. But Augustine uh, asks this question, what was Mary doing? And he says, I know she was eating Jesus. It's a Eucharistic insight and a glorious one. And see, none of you, you know, if you, if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, none of you would say, well, I know a lot about this person, but I never spend time with them. It's all cerebral. We get together and we discuss, you know, tulips. That's all we talk about is tulip and, you know, uh, this kind of theological uh, stuff. I mean, we would start to worry about your relationship. But see, with God, we often reduce it to the mind and to our washing machine list of things that need to be done. Whereas what God is calling us to is communion. And this is what Kierkegaard uses this expression from this narrative the one thing necessary. Immediately following this in Luke, you have this extraordinary situation where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray. Do you know why this is so extraordinary? Because they were Jews, and Jews prayed when they were coming out of the womb, just about. You know, they were really, really good Presbyterians. You know, they'd sung the Catechism when they, you know, could speak. And so they could tell you, if someone said, what is God, they could give you the Westminster Confession answer like that. But, you know, when they, uh, uh, when they saw Jesus pray, it was as though they did not know how to pray at all. And so they said to him, Lord, won't you teach us to pray? And it may be that we need to do that, because then you get this extraordinary prayer. And this would have blown his disciples away, Father, who art in heaven. Extraordinary intimacy with this God who is so transcendent. And you know, uh, I I think as well uh, as Protestants and Reformed, and I'm a Reformed evangelical, so I glory in being at a place like Covenant College, but we have to retrieve these And many of us need to shut up for a while. You know, we're so full of words. And you know, the Lord's Prayer is very short. Have you noticed that? We feel uncomfortable. What would I do with it? You know, if I said to you, we're canceling classes now, of course, all the faculty would freak out, understandably. So we're going to have an hour of prayer. Would you know what to do with an hour of prayer? Or would it be scary to you? But less words more communion. So I just want to finish with a a Tolstoy story that I absolutely love, and I hope you'll like it as much as I do. It's a Tolstoy story about three Russian monks on a faraway island, and their bishop visits them, and he's very concerned. They don't know the Our Father. So he spends some time instructing them in the Our Father, and when he's leaving on his boat, He looks behind with amazement to see the monks running across the water towards the boat. Father, they say, we can't remember the Our Father. Amazed, he says, well, how do you normally pray? Well, they say, dear God, there are three of you and there are three of us. Have mercy on us. And the bishop is struck by their simplicity and holiness and tells them to return and to be at peace. So today at Covenant, how are you doing? And maybe today you will hear the call of the Father, saying, you know, it is stressful, this is a hard time, you're tired, all the more reason, create some space for time with me. Open the door towards the possibility that you can even live this difficult time of the academic year as all flame. And if you're going to do that, you're going to need to start prioritizing time alone with God. Some of you will have to start with five minutes, others ten minutes, others maybe can do half an hour. But don't go for too much, just a little bit. Come to stillness, a verse of Scripture, and open yourself to God for that time. Follow Jesus, and then this opportunity presents itself, that we will have students coming out of Covenant College who are not just shaped in their minds, which is a glorious thing, but we will start to see students emerging who are all flame. Amen.